Section 4 of A Dissertation on the Inspiration of the New Testament by Philip Doddridge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I hope I have by this time convinced my reader that it is agreeable to the other circumstances of the Apostle's story, and to the promises which our Lord so largely and so frequently made to them, and the frequent repetition of the promise strongly intimates the importance of it, to suppose that they were indeed favoured with a full inspiration in their writings. But to complete the argument, it must be observed that these holy men, for such the history plainly shows them to have been, assume to themselves such an authority, and speak of their own discourses and writings in such peculiar language, as nothing but a consciousness of such inspiration could warrant or even excuse. To make us duly sensible of the force of this argument, let us hear Paul, Peter, and John, and we shall find the remark applicable to them all though as St. Paul wrote much more than either of the latter, we may naturally expect to find the most frequent instances of it in his writings. When the Apostle Paul had taken notice to the Corinthians that the subject of his preaching was the wisdom of God in a mystery, and related things which transcended the sense and imagination of men, he adds, 1 Corinthians 2.10, But God hath revealed them to us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, even the deep things of God and again verse twelve we have received not the spirit of the world so as to act in that artful way which a regard to secular advantages dictates but the spirit which is of god that we may know the things that are freely given us of god now it is natural to conclude from hence that this knowledge being given them not merely or chiefly for themselves but for the church in which view they speak of themselves and their office as the gift of god to the church compare ephesians four eleven twelve and 1 Corinthians 3.21-23, they should be assisted to communicate it in a proper manner, since otherwise the end of God in giving it to them would be frustrated. But the Apostle does not content himself with barely suggesting this, but he asserts it in the most expressed terms, 1 Corinthians 2.13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, that is, not with a vain ostentation of human eloquence, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, or, as some would render and paraphrase it, adapting spiritual expressions to spiritual things. And in the close of the chapter, when with a noble freedom, in a consciousness of the distinguished character he bore, he puts the question to the whole world besides, who hath known the mind of the Lord, he adds, but we have the mind of Christ which last clause plainly determines the sense in which we are to take those words at the close of chapter seven and i think also that i have the spirit of god that is i certainly appear to have it or it is evident and apparent that my pretences to it are not a vain boast for after having so expressly asserted it just above none can imagine he meant here to insinuate that he was uncertain whether he had it or not he appeals therefore to those whose gifts were most eminent to dispute it if they could 1 Corinthians 14.37, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, that is, if he have ever so good evidence that he really is so, for it cannot be thought he meant to appeal only to those who falsely pretended to these endowments, let him acknowledge that these things which I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 10, he speaks of forgiving offenders in the person of Christ, and amidst the humblest acknowledgments of his own insufficiency, boasts a sufficiency of God, who had made him an able minister of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. 
of which he was so thoroughly sensible that in the first epistle which he ever wrote so far as scripture informs us to any of the churches i mean his first epistle to the thessalonians he ventures to say chapter four eight that he that despiseth that is as the context plainly implies he that despiseth or rejecteth what i now write despiseth not man only or chiefly but god who hath given us his holy spirit which manifestly intimates that what he wrote was under supernatural divine guidance and influence as in the second verse of that chapter he had spoken of commandments which he had given them by the lord jesus christ just as he afterwards declared to the corinthians two corinthians thirteen three how well he was able to give proofs of christ speaking in him in his epistle to the galatians the apostle solemnly assures them galatians one eleven and twelve that the gospel which he had preached among them was not after man that is not of any human origin and he gives this substantial proof of it that he was himself taught it no otherwise than by the immediate revelation of jesus christ agreeable to which assertion when he gives the corinthians an account of the institution and design of the lord's supper he says in so many words one corinthians eleven twenty three that he had received of the lord what he delivered unto them that is that he had his notion of that sacrament and of the actions and words of christ on which it was founded by an immediate inspiration from him or in the language we have used above by suggestion and he speaks of his brethren as well as of himself in these terms ephesians three three and five that the mystery of christ which was before unknown that is the right of the gentiles on believing the gospel to full communion with the christian church was made known to the holy apostles and prophets by the spirit and not merely by the natural recollection of what they had heard christ say or by their own reasonings upon it most agreeable to this is the strain of peter who in one epistle joins the commandment of the apostles with the words of the holy prophets two peter three two and mentions the epistles of paul with other scriptures verse fifteen and sixteen no doubt in allusion to the sacred oracles of the old testament which so generally went by that name and in his other epistle he insists strenuously upon it that the gospel was preached with the holy ghost sent down from heaven in exact conformity with the prophetic oracles of former ages not understood by those who utter them a circumstance in this connection highly worthy of our remark and he seems strongly to intimate that the angels themselves did by these apostolical preachings learn some things which with all their superior faculties they did not before so fully know which things he says the angels desire to look into one peter one twelve as paul had also said that to the principalities and powers in heavenly places was made known by the church the manifold wisdom of god ephesians three ten to conclude this argument st john remarkable as he was for his singular modesty and ingenuity of temper does not only tell us that jesus christ showed him the revelation revelation one one but speaks in his epistle of an unction poured out from the holy one by which they knew all things one john two twenty and in another passage he in effect asserts that he had in concurrence with his brethren given such abundant proof of his being under the divine influence and direction in his teaching whether by word or letter that an agreement or disagreement with his doctrine was to be made the standard by which they might judge of truth or error and obedience or disobedience to his injunction the test of a good man or a bad man which is considerably more than merely asserting the fullest inspiration one john four six we are of god he that knoweth god heareth us he that is not of god heareth not us hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error 
I might here add, if it were necessary, the several passages of the New Testament in which the gospel preached by the apostles is called the gospel of God, such as 2 Corinthians 11.7, 1 Timothy 1.11, and the like, but I omit them, as the stress of the controversy does undoubtedly rest on these I have mentioned, and the importance of the question must be my defence for so large an enumeration of texts which are so well known. I shall only remind my reader in a few words of those many passages in which the gospel as preached by the apostles is so evidently equalled with, yea, and preferred to, the law given by Moses and the messages brought to the Jews by the succeeding prophets. These afford a further illustration of this argument, which will appear with very considerable weight when we reflect on the high opinion they had of the Old Testament and the honourable terms in which they speak of it as the word and oracles of God, Romans 3.2, as given by his inspiration, 2 Timothy 3.16, and as that which holy men spake as they were moved or borne on by the Holy Ghost, 2 Peter 1.21. None can fail of observing that they quote its authority on all occasions as decisive. Yea, our Lord himself strongly intimates not only the strict truth of the whole, but, which is much more, that it were intolerable to suppose it chargeable with any impropriety of expression, for this must be the sense of those remarkable words, John 10.35, that the scripture cannot be broken, and the whole force of our Lord's argument depends upon interpreting them thus. I might argue at large the improbability and indeed the great absurdity of supposing that such assistances were given to Moses and the prophets as to make their writings an infallible rule of truth and practice, and that the subjects of God's only begotten Son and the grand minister in his kingdom should be left destitute of equal assistance in their work and writings. I think the argument would be unanswerable if considered apart, but I now mention it in another view, as illustrating the persuasion the apostles had of their own inspiration when they speak of their teachings and decisions, as equally authentic with those of the illustrious prophets for whom they had so great and so just a regard. I am fully satisfied that this last argument from the manner in which the apostles speak of themselves in their writings will strike the reader in proportion to the degree in which he reflects upon the true character of these excellent men and especially upon that modesty and humility in which they bore so bright and so lovely a resemblance of their divine master. Let him ask himself what he would think of any minister of Christ now, supposing him ever so eminent for learning wisdom and piety, that should assume to himself such an authority. Suppose such a man, under the influence of no miraculous guidance, to say, not with reference to what he might quote from others, but with regard to his own dictates, the things which I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord, he that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God. We have the mind of Christ, and he that heareth not us, that receiveth not our dictates in religion, is not of God. Suppose, I say, such language as this to be used publicly by any Christian minister now on earth, and you must necessarily suppose his character from that very hour overthrown. The whole world would immediately join in loudly demanding miraculous proofs to verify such assertions, or in condemning, with just indignation, such a claim unsupported by them, as an unpardonable lording it over men's faith and conscience, and thrusting themselves into their master's throne." Let us not, then, charge the holy apostles with a conduct of which we should not suspect any wise and good man now upon the face of the earth, and which, if we saw in any of our friends, our charity and respect for them would incline us to inquire after some marks of lunacy in them, as its best excuse. 
I have now given an easy and popular view of the principal arguments for the inspiration of the New Testament, on which my own faith in that important doctrine rests, and such a one as I hope by the divine blessing may be useful to others. I shall not enter into a particular consideration of the several objections against it, which chiefly arise from texts of Scripture in which some pretend to find that the Apostles were actually mistaken. I have considered most of these objections already, in my notes on the texts from whence they are taken, for almost all of them relate to passages in the historical books, and I do not know that I have omitted any of them, but have everywhere given, though as briefly as I could, such solution as appeared to me in conscience satisfactory, though I have not stood formally to discuss them as objections against the inspiration of those books. The reader will observe that very few instances have occurred in which I have judged it necessary to allow an error in our present copies, but as in those few instances the supposed change of a word or two makes the matter perfectly easy, I think it most respectful to the sacred writings to account for the seeming difficulty thus, and to impute it to the transcribers, though it is certain some of these mistakes, supposing them such, did happen very early because as mr seed very properly expresses it in his excellent sermon on this subject which since i wrote the former part of this dissertation fell into my hands a partial inspiration is to all intents and purposes no inspiration at all for as he justly argues against the suppositions of any mixture of error in these sacred writings mankind would be as much embarrassed to know what was inspired and what was not as they could be to collect a religion for themselves the consequence of which would be that we are left just where we were and that god put himself to a great expense of miracles to effect nothing at all a consequence highly derogatory and injurious to his honour the arguments brought from a few passages in the epistles to prove that the apostles did not think themselves inspired weak as they are will be considered if god permits in their proper places at present i shall content myself with referring the reader to dr whitby who I think has given a satisfactory solution to them all. There are other objections of a quite different class, with which I have no concern, because they affect only such a degree of inspiration as I think it not prudent, and am sure it is not necessary to assert. I leave them therefore to be answered by those, if any such there be, who imagine that Paul would need an immediate revelation from heaven, and a miraculous dictate of the Holy Ghost, to remind Timothy of the cloak and writings which he left at Troas, or to advise him to mingle a little wine with his water. Waiving therefore the further discussion of these topics, on which it would be more easy than profitable to enlarge, I shall conclude this dissertation with a reflection or two of a practical nature, into which I earnestly entreat the reader to enter with a becoming attention let me engage him seriously to pause and consider what sort of an impression it ought to make upon us to think that we have such a book a book written by a full divine inspiration that amidst all the uncertain variety of human reasonings and conjectures we have a celestial guide through the labyrinth that god hath condescended to take care that we should have a most authentic and unerring account of certain important though very distant facts many of which were wrought with his own hand and with these facts should have a system of most weighty and interesting doctrines the truth of which he makes himself a witness such a book must to every considerate person appear an inestimable treasure and it certainly calls for our most affectionate acknowledgment that god should confer such a favour on any of his creatures and much more on those who by abusing in too many instances their natural light had made themselves so utterly unworthy of supernatural 
From this view of the inspiration of Scripture, we may also infer our obligation to study it with the greatest attention and care, to read it in our closets and our families, and to search in the most diligent and impartial manner into its genuine sense, design, and tendency, which is, in the main, so evident that no upright heart can fail of understanding it, and every truly good heart must delight to comply with it. This is indeed a most important inference, and that without which all our convictions of its divine authority will only condemn us before God and our own consciences. Let us therefore always remember that in consequence of all these important premises, we are indispensably obliged to receive with calm and reverent submission all the dictates of Scripture, to make it our oracle, and in this respect to set it at a due distance from all other writings whatsoever, as it is certain, there is no other book in the world that can pretend to equal authority and produce equal or comparable proofs to support such a pretension. Let us measure the truth of our own sentiments, or those of others, in the great things which Scripture teaches, by their conformity to it. And oh, that the powerful charm of this blessed book might prevail to draw all that do sincerely regard it into this centre of unity that dropping those unscriptural forms which have so lamentably divided the church we might more generally content ourselves with the simplicity of divine truths as they are here taught and agree to put the mildest and kindest interpretation we can upon the language and sentiments of each other this is what i cannot forbear inculcating again and again from a firm persuasion that it is agreeable to the spirit of the gospel and pleasing to its great author and I inculcate it in this place and at this time with peculiar affection, as the providence of God around us calls us loudly to do all we can with a safe conscience to promote a union among Protestants. And I heartily pray that our mutual jealousies and prejudices, which some are so unseasonably labouring to exasperate, may not provoke God to drive us together by a storm of persecution, if, peradventure, the bond of suffering together may be strong enough to bind those whom the endearments of the same Christian profession, the same rule of faith, of manners, and of hope, have not yet been able to unite. On the whole, let me most affectionately invite and entreat every reader, whatsoever his rank in life or his proficiency in learning may be, seriously to consider the practical design of these sacred oracles, the sense and authority of which I have been endeavouring to explain and assert. It is indeed a mystery in divine providence that there should still remain so much difficulty in them, as that in many points of doctrine, thoughtful, serious, and I trust upright men should form such different opinions concerning the interpretation of so many passages, and the justice of consequences drawn from them, on the one side and on the other. But of this there can be no controversy, that the great design of the New Testament, in delightful harmony with the old, is to call off our minds from the present world, to establish us in the belief of a future state, and to form us to a serious preparation for it, by bringing us to a lively faith in Christ, and, as the genuine effect of that, to a filial love to God, and a fraternal affection for each other or in one word, and a weightier and more comprehensive sentence was never written, to teach us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope, even the glorious appearance of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 12 and 13. To his almighty hand may our souls be committed by a faith productive of these glorious fruits, and under the sanctifying, quickening, and supporting influences of his Spirit may we wait for his mercy unto eternal life. 
then shall no terror of suffering no allurement of pleasure no sophistry of error be able to seduce us but guided by that light and truth which shines forth in the sacred pages we shall march on to that holy hill where having happily escaped all the dangers of that dark path which we now tread we shall greet the dawning of an everlasting day the arising of a day-star which shall go down no more amen end of section four